Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Welcome to the Institute of Economic Affairs YouTube channel. My name is Matt Flash and I'm the Head of Public Policy here at the IA. Today I have the great pleasure of being joined by uh, the free market libertarian champion hero economist, Deidre McCloskey. Uh, McCloskey trained at uh, Harvard in the 1960s as an economist, has written 20 books and some 400 academic articles on issues ranging from economic theory to statistical theory, feminism, law, ethics. Uh, she taught at the University of Chicago in the economics department during its glory days. Welcome back to the IEA. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm always glad to be here. So you describe yourself as literary, quantitative, postmodern, free market, progressive, Episcopalian, ex-Marxist, Midwestern, women from Boston, woman from Boston, who was once a man, not conservative, <laughs> I'm a Christian classical liberal. So can we start unpacking that and, and how that maybe influences your views and, and, and made you uh, who you are today in terms of such a kind of star intellectual thinker? Um, quantitative, but with a literary background. So, so what do you think, how do you think literature plays into your kind of economic thinking? Well, it, it, it plays in more and more. In, in the 1980s, I, I, I decided to become educated. So I started to read the, read the TLS. <laughs> And to learn Latin and Greek, and uh, and and I and, and and I came to understand how important talk was in the economy, persuasion, sweet talk, and how important are then. It, this all took a long time. I'm not saying bang, I, I got it, but how how important ethics are in the economy. How important. Um, as, as an analyst of the economy, looking down on it, how important the categories are we choose, national income, or this or that. So it turns out that there's a massive amount of humanistic thinking which would go into a, a, a good economist. This is something that Marshall and Keynes said, you can't be a, can't be a good economist if you're only an economist. And I think a lot of modern economists don't get this. They think that, well, we'll just do more math and that'll, that'll, that'll be all we need. We don't need to talk about sociology or literature or theology or anything. And uh, I've increasingly come to think that humanomics, as we call it, the little teeny group of economists who are interested in this, or, um, is how economics ought to go. So, so it ought to be the Institute of Humanomical Affairs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think the way economics is often taught pushes against that. It uh, really the, does. The, these days, you know, when I was at Economics University, we very quickly, we, we didn't really talk at all about history or different yep. economic theories. Yep. It, was, it was all very much, here's a supply and demand graph. Right. You know, here's a, here's a theory about the way the economy operates. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, a, here's a, a mathematical equation. And, yeah. and the deeper you went in, the further yeah. you went along with yeah. economics yeah. education, the more you just had statistical models. Well, I'm, I'm very much in favor of statistics, numbers, I'm a quantitative person, as I say in that mm. description. I believe that a lot of social issues, especially ones that are that are spoken about at the IEA, are matters of how much, how big. 
I was trained a lot by engineers, and that's their attitude. How big, how big, how big? They've they got to do it or the bridge will fall down. But, uh, and I'm certainly not against mathematics. I think economists should know more mathematics than what they know now. But they got the wrong mathematics, and I could go into the details of that, but they, they, they aren't really thinking about statistics or mathematics in, in sensible, useful ways. And uh, when you do, you discover that, that, well, it's rather obvious in a, in a statistical study that the choice of variables that you put in the equation matter a great deal. And that is frequently a humanistic question. It's a question of looking back on language and thinking philosophically or historically about what humans are interested in. And then at the end of the exercise, which is very much on the IEA side, you have to ask, so what? What's the, what's the importance? Not the statistical significance, which is a terrible um, error in, the, in technical economics, but the importance of what you've done, what, what, how it matters for the world. Hmm. So the, the next part of your session there, so you're a free marketeer, but you describe yourself as a, a postmodernist now. I am postmodern now. Most people think of postmodern as, oh, they're crazies. The Frankfurt School, the, uh, yeah, the, the Marxists. I, I, ad I admire the Frankfurt School. I'm not a Marxist. I was. When I was a kid, I was a Marxist, but I grew out of it. The old joke is if you're not a socialist when you're 16, you have no heart. <laughs> if you're still one when you're 26, you have no brain. And I just, I've adjusted the figures to fit my own case. But, the, um, f for example, Foucault, obviously postmodern thinker in France, towards the end of his life, shortened to last by AIDS, he um, started to read seriously Milton Friedman and Gary Becker and wrote very intelligently about them. Because he, and he was drifting towards the view that being queer doesn't, that it's not a smart move if you're queer to turn to the state. Because it turns out that the state in Northern Europe, not in Southern Europe, but Northern Europe, made it criminally <laughs> wrong to be homosexual, for instance, as Foucault was. So he was starting to see that non-state alternatives to in our lives are, have great value and that these people, Friedman and Becker, were saying so. I mean, I'm also fascinated by the, the kind of link between kind of a Hayekian knowledge view yep. perspective. You know, knowledge is dispersed. We don't have the full capacity of, of uh, to, to essentially control the economy as a result of the fact that you, you know central planning can make those decisions. In the same, in a different sense, you know, Foucault or Derrida kind of focuses on the, the power of knowledge and, and literature. Exactly. Um, it, and there's definitely, you know, kind of intellectual comparisons there. There is, and I, I, I found it in the 1980s and was all excited about it because, look, the basic point of postmodernism. Now, now look, they're crazies, I admit, but they're crazies on both sides. There are <laughs> crazies on the modernist side, mechanical economists who don't think about anything else but the statistical significance or the existence theorem. That's bonkers. 
And then on the other side, there are the, the postmodernists who say, oh, words, all that matter, nothing matters, truth is no truth, and so on and so forth. I'm right now writing a paper with the great sociologist of science at Cardiff, um, Harry Collins, on this very matter about how politics would be improved if we agreed that science pr produces truth, but not capital T truth, small t truth. And it's small t truth that postmoderns of a sensible sort, um, uh, when they're sensible, uh, do very well with. Look, numbers don't come with their own interpretation. Either do words. That's really all postmodernism says. And it's, I mean, it's a great insight. If you think about yeah, the, the way in which we as a society choose to um, you know, focus on different topics over time, or the exactly. way we the way we interpret um, different kind of claims and debate, it, it seems blatantly obvious to me that um, there's good insight there. I mean, the postmodernists, I think, get um, they get themselves in, in a trap, a very clear and obvious trap, which is if you say there's no such thing as truth, then how can you claim that even that statement has a sense of that's truth? Right, to it? That's you're, right. you're making a truthful statement. Well, that that's right. But that, that, I regard that particular. Um, Elenchus, as the Greeks would say, is kind of cheap. I, I don't approve of that argument, that, oh, you're, you're claiming there's truth about non-truth. But on the other hand, in economic policy, the, the kind of um, assumptions you start with, not just assumptions, but the attitudes you start with, are, are, are crucial. I'm going to give a talk tomorrow night at the LSE called The Impossibility of Policy, where I'm, I'm going to go after the assumptions in policy that are just kind of silly. Let's take an easy case. Stop-go policy in this country in the 1950s and 60s, macro policy. Every time the balance of payments started to go the wrong way, what they called the wrong way, they all got panicked and raised, raised bank rate and caused a recession. It was stupid. And now everyone agrees it was stupid. At the time, it was the height of wisdom. And it's not because there's been new econometric findings or something. That's not. It's because it, the, the economists doing policy have gotten a little bit more, uh, um, uh, how can I say, they're, they're, they're not quite as mechanically focused on the balance of payments as they were before. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was rereading Couplers and Freedom, which was, I think, originally written in the 19. 60s. 60s, yes, 60s. and and the the Freeman makes the very obvious today point, um, <laughs> which was obviously profound then, that you can't have a controlled exchange rate uh, combined with um, control of inflation, control of inflation, can't and both. Have balance of payments. You got to you got to choose one. Yeah. But I just want to move on, thinking about your your, your great work um, and your great, I suppose, contribution in, in recent history is very much been around this idea of the great. Enrichment. Indeed. Um, what, what is the great enrichment? Well, it's, it's simply a more sensi scientifically sensible word for what we usually call industrialization or the industrial revolution, which are terms that are, that are scientifically feeble and even misleading. I think the, what's, what's astonishing about the modern world is not that there was a brief period of growth from, I don't know, 1750 to 1850, so that it kept going. And income per head kept doubling. 
in every long generation in Britain or the United States or France or then Japan and, and uh, Botswana and so forth kept doubling every 30 years or so, boom, 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 boom. And um, the world as a whole, according to the World Bank, is probably going to go on having doubling every, at 2% at, at per year, that's about every 35 years of real income. And that's amazing. That's completely unprecedented. We call it the hockey stick, mm. meaning not the field hockey stick that bends back, but the, the ice hockey stick. It thrills Swedish and Canadian economists to talk this way, that men playing ice hockey. And it, 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 it completely transformed our lives. Your ancestors and mine were unspeakably poor. Mine were Irish and were illiterate. Um, among other things, they spent their whole life in a few, a few villages. They may have been happy. They may have been ecstatic, playing, playing, a, play, playing, playing a fiddle in the in the evening or something. But their scope of life, compared with ours, was dramatically lower. I, I think what I'm interested in is the extent of, I suppose, uh, great enrichment denial. So we're now, uh, it's 70 years ago, yep. um, the, the Queen uh, um, began her reign, the, the great, I suppose, Second Elizabethan era. And there was a poll taken the other day that suggested, um, asked people, you know, do you think the world's gotten better, worse, or stayed about the same? And 38% of people uh, said that they thought the world has gotten better since 1952, 30% of people thought it had gotten worse, and 17% said neither. Now, to put that in perspective, in my mind, uh, 70 years ago, half of the people in this country did not have a bathroom. Of they, course. They didn't have indoor plumbing. Just, just you know, one very, let alone you know, the internet. They didn't and have a fridge. The, I remember the immense putting the bottle of milk on the windowsill. To keep it cool. Me, I did it. To keep so, it cool. Why do you think, I suppose, there's such, I suppose, I don't know if it's retrospective nostalgia about the past, yeah. denial of progress, do, do people have a sense of different kind of progress they're talking about? It's all that. Look, change is distressing. Who moved my cheese? It's irritating. I mean, this morning I was trying to get uh, uh, my COVID thing arranged because the stupid American government still insists that you get a COVID test to come back to the United States. In, in Britain, you've become much more sensible. Okay, well, you know, figuring out how to do it on my, on my uh, cell phone, I'm, I'm, I'm 79 years old. And the height of technological sophistication in, when I was a kid was the dial telephone. <laughs> so, you know, this thing that does everything but the washing up, I find very challenging. So that, there's the kind of that. Oh, it was so lovely. But that's why I emphasize the scope of human life. The scope is so much bigger. People have more education. It's not just the fridge and the, uh, you know, and, and, and the motor and so forth. Uh, but it's, it's the, the, the ways they can be human. I mean, the, the tremendous d diversity of um, jobs you can have. We have less difficult, physically difficult jobs than we had in 19, uh, 1948 or 1953. We, we're, we're much better off in that respect. And, and what do you think has driven the great Richmond? 
What caused it was ideas, and what caused it is is liberalism. I have I have debates with my colleagues in economic history and in economics. I taught to, I spoke a couple of nights ago to the um, um, the London School of Economics and got some some pushback on this, but. In the end, they have to agree that any change, now change is irritating and people get angry about it and that's a problem. But if they accept change, the change had to start in someone's brain. Someone's, it had to be a mind act. And that's, all, that's not all I'm saying. That's the core of what I'm saying. And a free society in which ideas can, can flourish, as uh, Matt Ridley says, ideas have sex, um, innovations have sex with each other, and then the baby innovations have sex and the grandbaby, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> in this enormous explosion of innovation since 1800. Um, that, that enriches us. It's not, and my, what I'm saying is that on the one hand, the conservative argument that it's investment is wrong, and on the other hand, the, the, the progressive argument that it's exploitation is wrong. You can show it, and I have. Um, and what's left over is innovation, novelties. Mechanical, biological, but also institutional, such as the, uh, the divided highway. The, the the motorway, mm. which is just an idea. And and you've talked in the past how you kind of started in Holland and then it came to yep. England and Scotland and then spread out Europe and into the colonies. What do you what do you think drove that? You know, what, and I suppose it's asking you know what what started the Big Bang? You know, who yeah. who pressed the button on the Big Bang? But it was God who pushed. I'm an Episc I'm I'm an Anglican, so I believe it was my Anglican God. But but by the way. She is a middle-aged lesbian single mother, <laughs> black Briton, who works at the uh, overweight, who works as a as a checker at the at, in Leeds at the Tesco. So get ready. <laughs> uh, but 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 what pushed the button for the great enrichment was a series of accidents that Northwestern Europe, Holland, and and uh, England and Scotland and their offshoots could then become liberal. They, look, the liberal idea is extremely new. It's an 18th century idea. The blessed Adam Smith's, um, uh, what does he call it, the, the obvious and simple system of natural liberty. Hmm. It's great triumph was the ending of slavery. But it was, um, it could have happened in Japan or the Ottoman Empire or northern India, uh, um, China, but didn't. And by a series of fortunate accidents, the liberal idea was installed in the minds of northwestern Europeans who were highly illiberal before. Under the reign of the first Queen Elizabeth, England was not a liberal country. Mm. We talk of the Englishman's freedoms and all that, but come on. They, they, they were, they were chopping off hands. So, so it doesn't really go back to the Magna Carta. It's, it's uh, it doesn't go back to Magna Carta. That was a bill of rights for barons, yeah, not for ordinary people. Although you could probably, you know, going back to your kind of postmodernist ideas, there, the 
the refinding of the Magna Carta in the, in exactly. the 19th century. Exactly. It's kind of a sign of the, the change exactly. in times. You know, we're we're exactly. going to ascribe these rights to, exactly. uh, to, to history. There, we, we're ex exceptionally badly informed about Magna Carta in the United States. And very frequently, people who emphasize, emphasize liberty and the economy think that Magna Carta was this great document that made Englishmen free. They don't ever mention English English women, but still. And it's just not correct. But I, I don't want to sneer at them. I, the, as you said, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reading of history that's, that's wig and is, as Macaulay, Thomas Babington Macaulay was, he is liberal. Does it not then feel like, I don't, if you say, in some sense it was an accident, it could, yeah. have, it could have very easily not yeah. happened. For example, if the Spanish Armada had landed the best army in Europe on the south coast of England, as it was attempting to do, that would have been it. That would have been it for European liberalism. Uh, you, you, European liberalism was not going to come out of the Habsburg Empire. So I think if you, if you look at kind of the, I suppose, maybe the, the peak period of liberalism, you, you could probably make an argument, um, you know, we had these, all these ideas of liberty, particularly in the 19th century. Once you get into the, I suppose, World War One, World War Two, the kind of Cold War era, yeah. you know, in, in England, the, the fact that we had rationing yeah. well post-war period, highly people. regulated economy up until Thatcher came along. British Why? people my age remember the end of the sweets ration. Which, which is a totally... 1953, I think it was, or 52. Yeah, I mean, it, there, was, there was an article the other day in, in The Telegraph talking about the, why people were so much thinner when, <laughs> uh, at the time of the coronation. Well, yeah, yeah. It was also because they didn't have any access to food. <laughs> Especially sweets. You know, I, I was worried reading that article, you're going to give the government an idea, they're going to tell us, they're going to start rationing food to oh, stop yeah. us from, yeah, from, from yeah, getting yeah, obese. Yeah. But, but still somehow, I, I don't know, I don't, maybe through muddling through, maybe through the, the institutional setting that was created in the 19th century, we still continued to get richer in the 20th century. We did. And we, we got some of the kind of great innovations through that we period. We did. Look, vastly, most of the economy is still private. It's not, it's not even though there, it's irritating that the share of expenditure of the central government and other levels of government is very high in Britain and high in my country and, high, and higher in France, always mm -hmm. higher in France, still there's a tremendous scope for people to um, have a go, uh, to uh, start new businesses and so forth, and to, and to move. Moving's an entrepreneurial act. When you move from the Northeast to London, um, you're, you're making a great leap and still more if you move from Afghanistan to London. You're making a great leap. It's very entrepreneurial. And there's still a lot of scope for that. And so we continue making new, having new ideas. Every time I come to London, I see new things. I mean, I feel sometimes, particularly, I don't know whether you follow the debate closely in the UK, but. Um, there's, there's very much been a, a push against the idea of people moving to London. I know that. Um, I know that. And th that's why I mention it. I am familiar with this. Not terribly familiar, but I know about it. This idea of leveling up as, as the government's Leveling term. up, and it's, a, it's, it's silly. Because 
leveling up means that we're going to give aid, now hear, hear my words carefully, to the Northeast, as though it was to the land of Durham. Now wait a second, are we giving aid to land or to people? Mm. Are we giving land to high street merchants at, at, at Durham? Or, or are we giving rent? Or are we giving help to workers? And the help to workers is for them to move where there's work. That's the best welfare program there is. And everyone knows it. Look, since 1800, income per head of ordinary people in Britain, and, and the poorest among them, has increased by a factor of about 20. That's almost, that's roughly 2,000%. And the best you can do with a little leveling up where you give the money to Northumbria, why Northumbria? Uh, you give it to Northumbria and people stay there in Durham or wherever, they, they uh, <laughs> that's, that may increase their income over what it would have been if they just stayed there and starved or by 10% or 50%. It's the 2,000% that you want to get. Mm -hmm. It's the big increases. So it's just madness to uh, do this kind of thing. You should let the economy find its way yeah. and, and people will be better off. They'll have more scope. They won't necessarily be happier. You can be happy as a, as, as a pig in mud, as we used to say in Iowa, just <laughs> sitting there in the mud, and that's nice, but happiness is this crazy measurement of happiness that economists go in for now. It's a completely wacko, but anyway, the happiness is not the point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd like to see the government focus a lot more on what are the barriers to people being able to that's move. Right. That's right, that's right, that's right. It's equality of permission not of outcome, that's Rousseau and socialism, yeah. not equality of opportunity, which, which is a nice thing. I wish everyone could go to the, the best um, high schools and so on, but, but, but it's very hard to achieve, and actually it's impossible to achieve because your parents or mine were not the same. And uh, I had the good taste to uh, choose parents who were a my father was a professor at Harvard and my mother was an opera singer. <laughs> so I get full credit for choosing parents for, I mean, this is crazy. Equality of opportunity is not achievable. Equality of permission is. And the permission to build housing, which, as you know, is clotted in this country to an extraordinary yeah. extent, um, is one of the main things that keeps people where they are. And Wherever it is. Yeah, Sobson having that opportunity to exactly. go and get a higher productivity, better playing job. Yeah, I right. mean, uh, I mean, economists talk about amalgamation effects, which I think is probably argu arguably just another reflection of what the, the, the magic that can happen when lots of people get together. And yep. as Matt Ridley says, ideas have sex. And, yeah. and then you get that kind of creation of entrepreneurialism. But you're not going to get sure. that when people are unnecessarily distributed and. and yeah. Uh, there, 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 there is, uh, there's an element of this which is a. Uh, bucolic nostalgia. I mean, English people just love the village. <laughs> and they're just mad about villages. I was in one for a couple of days earlier this week, and it's very nice, and everyone knows the 
the vicar and and uh, there's the local idiot and I mean it's all very very nice and sweet but it's a um, and, and we shouldn't be taxing some people to give some other people the right to indulge their bucolic nostalgia. For instance, subsidies to farmers are, in my view, just evil. You, you're, because you're, you're, you're English and you think, oh, the countryside is so beautiful, let's help the farmers at the expense of people who buy food. So, you know, that, that's a decision that Britain made in the against it in the 1840s, and I wish they'd stick with it. Yeah, unfortunately, it was still one, you know, recreating the EU subsidy system for, for farmers. Um, I, I just want to move and think of some of, I suppose, the, the threats to liberty, and it seems like very much on both sides of the political spectrum, both in the UK and the US, we've got this new sense of a greater role for the state. Yeah. You know, we've got the left demanding, you know, their senses of regulation and redistribution. You've got the right talking about how, you know, free market capitalism has destroyed communities and free trade has That's destroyed right. the industrial base. And I think you've also got all these other kind of um, pressures out there from uh, post-COVID dynamics to what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, limiting yep. global trade. China's turning a bit more authoritarian yeah. uh, in its move and becoming... As though it wasn't authoritarian well, enough. Well, yes. Yeah, you're right. And, and even, you know, the, the, the extent of market liberalisation is very much, that uh, you could argue, led to a lot of their prosperity is now being reversed. Mm -hmm. On all over the places you can, you can kind of make the, this argument that we're seeing a real turn against liberalism or the, the values and, mm -hmm. and the ideas that drove the great enrichment. It's just how, how concerned are you um, uh, should we be worried, and, and, and if so, what can, what can we do about it? I'm very concerned, but look, the, the, the demonstration effect is enormous. One of the reasons that the, what we used to call the Red China, Red China moved to um, free markets, at least in the economy, not, not the rest of life, was Hong Kong. Mm. Hong Kong's success. It was perfectly obvious. One of the great cities of China was run by the British with extremely light hand, and the result was that income per head, which in 1948 was the same in Hong Kong and on the, uh, in red China, now income per head in Hong Kong is a little bit below that of the United States. Now, <laughs> under the new um, Xi Jinping regime, it's going to go down. That he's going to destroy Hong Kong, but you know that's 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 too bad. But the, so the the demonstration effect is great. That uh, and my own country was the great demonstration effect. It was the the United States was at first Britain, then the United States were the great Anglophone examples, and then Australia and so forth of economic and social success. And we're. Uh, we're in danger of, of what would you say, of um, her, uh, of damaging it. Well, uh, I'm but but I'm optimistic. I think I, I think we can win this debate, you and I, uh, because we won it once. The birth of liberalism in the 18th century was a great event which caused the modern world, I say. It's liberalism. It's not the state. 
the, there are three great ideas that thinkers about society have had in the last three centuries. Liberalism was the first, then nationalism, then socialism. And if you like the last two, if you like nationalism and socialism, maybe you like national socialism. Maybe you like fascism. Because what did it for us was not, was individual effort, individual create, creativity, individual liberty to, to be who you want to be, uh, um, uh, um, to be able to have a go, as the English say, not the state. It, it seems, if you, let's say you say China is the great threat, I suppose, to the West or to the United States and, and the liberal world order, um, a lot of the response to that, I think, has been quite statist in nature, which is, which is to say we can beat China by basically uh, following China's model. We, we should pick but, our national champions. But it's so phony because there's no Chinese model. This whole phrase is a ridiculous. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nonsense just by itself. The, you don't think the Xi Jinping thought, you know, the great, the, no, the great no, leader? No, no, no. It's, he's, he's a violation of what actually happened in China. What actually happened in China after 1978, my friend Steve Chung was one of the movers of it, was to convince the Chinese Communist Party to adopt markets for, for real estate and so on and so forth. Agriculture and Agriculture farming and, and, and that's what they did. Having an entrepreneurial system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It worked extremely well. That's the liberal model, dear. It's not the Chinese model. The Chinese part of it is continuation of central planning and uh, ideas from the center imposed on the rest of the society. So their high-speed rail system, of which they have more trackage than any than the whole, whole rest of the world combined is glorious. I've been on it. It goes, um, you know, uh, it goes 150 miles an hour. It just whizzes along. No, it goes 200 miles an hour. Whizzes along. It's wonderful. It's cheap because it's massively subsidized. <laughs> the whole thing. It's a ridiculous project for such a poor country to do. But it's uh, the great state is imposing this. And this, uh, their Belt and Road Initiative, which uh, we, in journalistic terms everyone's afraid of, it's completely silly. It's, it's a, uh, it, it's a, it's just like, on a rather larger scale, it's like the Anglo-French Concorde. <laughs> it's an economic failure built in. Yeah, I know whether you've been following Sri Lanka recently, where they accepted a, a large amount of Chinese debt to build a port, to build an airport in yeah, the, yeah. The, the president's hometown, um, yeah. and now they're, they're massively indebted and, and have got a, an economic crisis. But they don't have to, because they could just say to the Chinese, so sorry, we're not paying. <laughs> now, in the 19th century, if you did that, the we Europeans sent, sent gunboats and made you do it. Mm. Uh, but China can't do that anymore. So if, uh, if Kenya or Greece, the, the, the port of Piraeus, the port of Athens, is owned by the Chinese. Volvo is owned by the Chinese, for that matter. And if the, uh, if the, the Greeks or the Kenyans, they're, they're, they, they, they're building a railway in Kenya, the Chinese are, you know, Foreign investment 
is not enslavement unless you cut the gunboats. And the Chinese can't do it. It's not going to work in the modern world. So if I were the uh, president of Kenya, and I, I'd say, oh, yeah, come on, build the road, build the railway. Oh, thank you very much. Here, hey, would you like to build some more stuff? Then I'd say on a, on a Tuesday, I'd say, so sorry, we're not paying you a cent. Go away. <laughs> I mean, this is what always found quite fascinating when um, in Australia, in my, in my home country, there's always this concern about you know, Chinese interests buying up agricultural land. It's like, where, it's land, it's not going anywhere. Feel free. <laughs> Let them buy up the land, then expropriate it. Well, yeah. I don't know, I wouldn't rush to expropriate, but certainly if, you've, if you're, no, in, no, no, if you're no. in war with them. It, but, uh, well, yeah, a, well, that's what's happening with the, uh, with the uh, what, what do they call the, uh, the, the oligarchs in Russia yeah. with their yachts. People are devising, nations are devising ways of seizing the yachts. By the way, as an Australian, what does 99.97 mean to you? 99.97. Now, you should know this as an Aussie. That's Donald Bradman's test average. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was out for a duck for his last innings. His very last innings is zero, and that got him below 100. 99.97. 99. Should be engraved on your soul. <laughs> the greatest, the greatest batsman. What was Shane Warne's? I don't know. I wonder if it was, it was anywhere near as good. No, it wasn't. That's that's what's so amazing yeah. about Bradman. That in the at Lords, which I often go to, I love Lords. They have this wonderful museum. As you come in, in a glass case are Sir Donald Bradman's boots. <laughs> he was very fast. He could, he he could get out to the pitch of the ball. It must have been must have been great. Oh, he must great have been great boots. Yeah. I mean, I, just kind of thinking earlier and, and, and before. See, I love numbers. I'm quantitative, but I'm also literary. You're a, you're the, the modern uh, every everything, aren't you? Um, I mean, thinking, in terms of the main concerns we hear in debate today, and yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of interested in your, your response to them, uh, we're talking earlier about just, historically it was the great debate about capitalism and socialism, yeah. which really enraged young people. Now it's all about the environment, it's about the yes, system, which, you know, the, the great enrichment, which you talk about, that, that say industrialization has, on net, I think that you'd make a kind of environmental case that we've depleted the world's resources, we've got limited carrying capacity for the planet, you know, it's all, it's all over because of climate change, the apocalypse is near, if yeah, you want yeah, to go yeah. to the extreme yeah. sense of it. Do you, do you take any truth in that? Have we, have we not protected the environment enough? Have we not? So we have frequently said, for the last 100 years, longer actually, 150 years, people have some people have worried about the environment and said that we're about to run out of coal. That was one of the things they said in the 1860s. Or we're about to have a catastrophe environmentally. And it hasn't happened. And I think that this doesn't mean there's no policy at all that I can think of that states should implement, but I think they should have a very light hand, maybe a carbon tax, um, and that then sort of stand back and let human innovation, which as, uh, 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 I'm always forgetting his name, as a famous economist said, um, human innovation is the, is the ultimate resource. Mm. Oil in the ground doesn't matter until we have a little bit of organic chemistry to turn it into kerosene and then suddenly it's important. And this happens over and over and over again. 
They're beginning to have some success, moderate success, with carbon capture, for example. In Iceland, where they've got virtually free energy because of, the, uh, uh, because of thermal energy, they're on top of a volcano, um, they, they're, they're having experiments with seizing uh, carbon from the air. And, and I, can, I can see, but I can't see. If I could see, I would be smart. I would be rich. If I was so smart, I'd be rich. And the people talking about catastrophe act as though they know what the future will bring. And as, as a liberal, I'm not a conservative, so I don't want the world to go back to the 1950s. I'm not a progressive, as I was when I was a kid, uh, um, one thinking I know how to lay down the future because I know all about it. I, I know everything about it. I'm a liberal. I know there's uncertainty in the world, but I'm, I'm, I'm as again uh, Matt says, I'm a rational optimist. I, I can, I, I've seen it work for two centuries. It's enormously increased the scope of human life. Poverty in the world has been to a large extent alleviated, not completely. We've got more to do, but it's getting better and better every day. And that's what we need to do. And I, I think the future is bright. Um, the, the other kind of narrative, particularly in, in the States, but also kind of creeps over into the UK, is this idea about empire, slavery, colonial exploitation. Oh, yeah. That's madness. Uh, as the kind of key driver of well, as I said, economic progress. As I said, the conservative argument is that it's capital. These virtuous uh, rich people save money by exploiting the poor, says, says the left. But anyway, saves money, save money and invest it. And that makes us rich, and that's nonsense. That's not true. Um, but on the other side, on the left, they say, ah, Britain is rich because they exploited India. Or the United States is rich because it exploited slavery. Now, wait a second. If slavery were, such, were, were the way to wealth, Brazil would have led economic development in the West, not the United States. Brazilian slavery was a lot bigger and much closer to Africa. It was hard even for the, uh, uh, for, for the, the, the fleet sent by, by Britain to stop the slave trade, to stop it, to go to Brazil. And furthermore, East African slave trade was much longer and about the same size as the Atlantic slave trade. East African was the slave trade into the Middle East. And then what the, uh, the Ottoman Empire would have been the place where enrichment happened. So there, it just doesn't make any sense. If apartheid in South Africa had enriched the white population, then the white population of South Africa would be richer than the white population of Australia, where despite the, the horrible treatment of the Aborigines, obviously didn't depend on the aboriginal labor or something, whereas in South Africa, you can see that it did. But that's not true. Income per head in South Africa from, say, 1900 to the present of white people now rose at about the same rate as in Australia. So there's just no case at all mm. that this uh, generous, and I, I understand the, the, the ethical motivation, idea that uh, 
we're rich because we were such terrible people in the past, and it's, it's just it's, it's just not plausible. We're rich because of innovation, because of better glass and better universities and better marriages, because we've changed things. Um, just kind of on, on a final topic, uh, something that the, has become quite a big debate in the UK in, in, in recent months, in recent years, um, surrounds the uh, issue of kind of trans yeah. rights. Yeah. Um, just recently, the, the Attorney General made a, a comment uh, that they wanted to see, she wanted to see schools be, I suppose, less welcoming of trans people. Uh, and you know that they weren't legally obliged to recognise someone who's under the yeah. age of eighteen who might want to transition. Yeah. Um, they don't have to, you know, give them access to toilets or um, let them play in sports teams or you know whatever else the school yeah. choice might want to make. Um, you've written about your experience as someone who, who is is trans in involved in kind of the, the libertarian conservative liberal movement. I'm wondering what what your feeling is on watching the debate in the UK. Well, I'm shocked at how virulent it is over here. I blame Germaine Greer, one of your country. <laughs> I apologize for her. Uh, yeah, you really should. She's, she's appalling. Sir so Donald, we, we even went to the same university, I think. Did so you really? Yeah. Sir Donald Bradman, yes. Germaine Greer, no. Yeah, pluses and minuses. Yeah, she's uh, horrible in this and has been for, for, for decades. And it's, it, uh, it's become absurdly uh, virulent here. On both sides, uh, the uh, uh, driving what's her name, um, Kathleen uh, Stock out of out of Sussex. I'm going to be teaching with her this summer at the new um, liberal university in uh, Austin called the called the University of Austin. She and I will be teaching in the same week there. Um, uh, uh, on the one hand, the the, the pro this presumably pro trans people are crazy and and uh, wish to do. Uh, physical damage to her and to, but on on the other hand, people like the attorney general are just cruel, just cruel and stupid. What do you do with a little girl born uh, female XX genes, who says from the age of two years old, three, four, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. Well, how soon am I going to grow a penis? What is this? I'm not going to wear a dress. To hell with dresses. I don't want a doll. I want a truck. What are you going to do with her? Are you going to torture her and say, no, no, dear, you can't transition until you have all secondary sexual um, characteristics of a female. And then we'll, then, then we'll do the operations we, that I did from the other side on you. I mean, for God's sakes, it's just stupid. So, so a, a, uh, uh, look, I'm, as I said, as you pointed out at the beginning, or I said at the beginning, I'm a Christian liberal. I believe that we owe an obligation to the poor and to the handicapped, and that we need to be we need and a society of love. And the attorney general is not expressing that; she's expressing a society of hate. Hate works politically. It was hate. Well, I could I, I could give I won't get controversial by talking about uh, the Brexit, but still. <laughs> Hate runs politics much more than, than, than it should. L love should run politics. Now the problem is <laughs> that our friends on the left th think that love consists of me running your life. 
and I don't think so. Well, on that uh, that note about about love, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mikulski, for, for joining us here at, at the IEA. Um, for those who've enjoyed this discussion, please do subscribe to the IEA's YouTube channel, where you can get more video content throughout the week. And if you have a little bit of extra to support the IEA, please do sign up as a Patreon, and you can learn more about that on the IEA website at iea.org.uk. Thank you very much.